0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Pastor John Jay. I am the lead pastor here, and I get to, to teach and preach with you today. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can open it to Matthew chapter 8. Today we're going to talk about loneliness. First, a story. Brian, would you throw that first slide up? Has anyone been to a cuddling party? You're wondering why we're talking about this kind of thing? Right? So I found out about these years ago. There is, uh, By the way, if you've ever been to a cuddling party, there is no shame in this explanation. Cuddling parties, professional cuddlers, it is this entire kind of new industry that has popped up for folks who are isolated from what we would call like normal, regular, affectionate touch. Uh, and so kind of all over in big cities uh, they have a group called Cuddle Sanctuary that at least at some level has been operating in the LA area what it is it does not it is not as skeezy as it sounds it's a uh, it's a it's a group of people who get together who need affection and they don't have anywhere to get it and so they'll show up at these places there are folks who are trained you have to sign a, of course you have to sign a waiver of course you have to sign a waiver and then you can you can snuggle, you can hug, uh, sometimes you might just like spoon for a while. But this is what one person said who went to one. he said, I'm at this cuddle party to connect. And that word connect is what I want to hold on to today, because we're going to talk about loneliness and then about belonging. For these next three weeks and last week as well, we've been focusing on what we're saying are these crises and then these promises of God. So last week it was the crisis of meaning and the promise of truth. So loneliness and belonging today. Let's talk a little bit about, about loneliness and why this might be a crisis. So here's a question you don't have to answer. But I want you to think about it. Who do you trust with your most secret secrets? And if the only answer that you have here is your therapist... Then, and that's a, that's a good answer, like, but we need it to be a little bit broader than that. So think about who are the one, two, five people that you might trust with your most kind of intimate vulnerabilities. You have that person in your mind, you like holding it for a second here. So then the next question is when was the last time that you talked to that person? Or saw that person, or like, hugged that person you could say. We are in this moment right now of crisis. Chronic loneliness is this, uh, it's reached such a pitch that it's become a, a diagnosis for our times. And we feel really connected, right? Like we have all of these different ways that we can connect to one another. But even in this room right now, if we were honest, which way is everyone facing? Everyone's facing this way. We're we're here together, but it is optional to connect even in this space. We have to make it like an intentionality to see one another. So right now, Mary, you and I, right? But not necessarily you and anyone else unless you intend to, which you always intend to. But even showing up in the same shared space does not guarantee belonging at like a real deep level. There's this crisis that's happening. One of the ways we could talk about this crisis is uh, there's been a new position created in the UK called the Minister of Loneliness. Well, that's intense, y'all. You know it's a problem when you've got to have a government position to address it. They realized there's a public health crisis in the UK, and so they created uh, an office for loneliness. And this is the woman who occupies that space. A couple of other stats for you. Uh, Chronic loneliness is as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So what that means is if you have a friend, you can add 15 cigarettes to your day. (laughs) It's not not true. You have to add two friends to make up for that. That's, this is, there is a connection that we are rediscovering between our emotional spiritual health and our physical existence that the two are connected and interrelated. So when our hearts hurt, our bodies hurt. When we are socially isolated from one another, we can feel it in our very skin. This other one, for folks, especially 45 years and older, and loneliness becomes more and more acute, especially for folks who are advanced in age, as a lot of friends have died, or family can't get you as often and slowly find yourself just you at home. But for 45-year-olds and over, 40% of people now report chronic loneliness. And there might be some of you here today who are here in part because of these kinds of stats. You don't know these things as raw figures and data, you know them in your bones. You feel them in your body. When we were in school, we learned about uh, different ways to map out emotional processes. So has anyone drawn a family tree before? You've mapped out all the different ways your family's connected to each other? There's something called a genogram. Does anyone know what a genogram is? Hey, all of our therapists in the room raise their hands. <laughs> because you learned about it in school and maybe you've practiced it. Genogram is, uh, Michael, Sean, if I'm saying this wrong, just shake your head this way. Uh, a genogram is basically like a family tree with emotional processes inside of it. So you can see the different ways that emotional transference is the fancy language for it move through a family system. So like this is the way you would mark a connection in a genogram. You could say like, this is uh, me and this is my spouse, right? And that's the way that you would draw in a genogram the connection between those two. But one of the things that becomes really poignant whenever you map your family system out this way is you can see all of the disconnections, all of the moments of cutoff, of divorce, or separation. And there's a way to draw that too. It looks like this. Someone asked me earlier if this is a, what you say it was? A transistor or a conductor or a capacitor? I got it, third time, capacitor, it is not a capacitor, at least not in the way I'm thinking of it. This is cut off. This is isolation. Jean Vanier, who founded the L'Arche communities, the Lars communities are uh, these, I mean, they're just sort of like if you could... Uh, if you could find a window that looked into heaven it would look like what L'Arche looks like inside those homes around those tables. L'Arche communities are these, uh, these small basically family units where folks with uh, physical or developmental disabilities live with, uh, worship with, eat with, everything about life with uh, other folks who are able-bodied. And Jean Vanier is the founder of these communities and they're all over the world now, started in France. Canada and then have kind of spread everywhere. And, uh, here's what he says about loneliness. Because for him, as I was reading him this week, uh, he gave a lecture at Harvard a while back and said that it is already difficult enough to live in a world made for able-bodied people and have any kind of disability. But the hardest part is the social isolation that comes along with living in a world not made for you. And that the way that we talk about that is loneliness says to be lonely is to feel unwanted and unloved and therefore unlovable loneliness is a taste of death no wonder some people who are desperately lonely lose themselves in mental illness or violence to forget the inner pain so let's get into scripture the crisis on its face is obvious, so I don't want to spend a ton more time talking about it, but let's get to the root of where it comes from. Uh, this is on the cover of your bulletins today. Does anyone who is not on staff with us know what this means? For bonus points. I have a mint in my pocket I'll give you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh,
0: it says Lotove, right? Yes, Lotove. Where does Lotove come from? Perlman from cuddling <laughs> comes from the absence of cuddling, right? So uh, if you've got a Bible, you can't open it, or I'll I'll get you there. Um, we're in Genesis, Genesis chapter two. Genesis is this uh, the origin story, right? The, the The creation poem is this language of goodness that God speaks. And brings Tove into the world. And God said, and it was, and it was good. That's the rhythm of the creation poem. But there's this moment where sort of like the break screech, the record scratches, and God pronounces something low Tove, or not good. And that thing is loneliness. It is not good for the human to be alone. It's what it says in chapter 2. And so God creates a community. God creates relationality. Turns the humans toward each other and says something in this arrangement speaks of blessing. Speaks of of inherent goodness. Something about this turning and seeing speaks of God. So things are low-toed for the first time In the scriptures. Now here is the reality that emerges out of that early story. There is this disruption, right? This rupture that we would call the fall. Where there is this boundary that's placed on humanity. And the humans move past that boundary. The way we talk about that is they take and they eat the fruit of the tree they're not supposed to eat. And immediately, immediately, there are these consequences that are visited upon them. The way we talk about that in church is sin. It's the language of brokenness. It is the reality of our separation and our alienation. I've said it once. I've said it like a hundred times around here. The way that we think of sin, the way that I've found most helpful to speak of sin, is that which separates us from our primary relationships. That which creates loneliness. The way the Bible talks about that is moving east of Eden. They keep moving east. Each time the story falls apart, they take another step away from their primal belonging known as the garden. So God sets them outside of the garden, puts a guard at the gate, and they move east. The story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother. Cain moves even farther east. And all of a sudden you see, you physically see their separation from one another from creation, from God, and then from even themselves. And that is the way that we might think about sin. So lo tov is the possibility of loneliness, and then the fall is the realization that it is everywhere. So of course, of course, we would have a crisis of chronic loneliness because we live in a world suffused with the consequences of our actions. So you could draw it out, right, like a genogram with all of the cutoff marks. So there is, right, this is me here, and then I have these relationships with God, with you all, with the others, with creation, and then this relationship with my own interior. And the rupture is along all of those, which is left with just this. And that's exactly where most of us spend our time. In fact, this loneliness and isolation has become so normal that it's not so strange that we would each think that we are the central unit of meaning in the world. The isolated individual. Even when we think about and speak about uh, morality, about goodness, about salvation, it is often in terms of, of me and only me. Let's look at it just one more time a different way. Here they are. That's all the cutoff. That is a sad, sad genogram. Because what's left, right is just me. And there's a difference between solitude and loneliness. So we are not speaking about the ability to be alone and be at peace. Jesus shows us how to do that. We are talking about the inability to connect. I came to this cuddle party because I wanted to connect. Right? That's the language. The way that the Bible talks about this reality is the language of exile. It takes a while for that word to carry weight in the scriptural story, but it's been there all along. As soon as they move east out of the garden, they begin to live into their own exile. When they become a nation of Israel. That nation-building project is a project of belonging, of finding home again. And yet in their own repeating the patterns of their parents and grandparents find themselves in a full state of exile. Mainly and principally in the place called Babylon. So if you See that circle with just you inside of it and feel it, you can feel it, you are likely in exile. You might be in Babylon. You might be home. You might be here right now and still be in this space. So, to our scripture for the day. There's a sermon that happens after the sermon. The reading today, Noah, thank you so much for your reading. From Matthew chapter 8, right? Matthew chapter 8 comes right after what? And everybody said chapter 7. Yeah, what's Matthew chapter 7? It's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We were in the Sermon on the Mount forever. We know that thing really, really well. This is the sermon after the sermon. Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is sort of recreating this moment of Moses bringing down the Torah, the law. And Jesus gives it back to the people, interpreted through his life. Here's what God has been doing. Here's what God has been saying. Let me say it again to you. You've heard it said, but I say. Jesus is gathering the community back together. Teaching them how they might live such that God would recognize them as the people of God when God sees them blessed are you blessed are you and then jesus shows them what the sermon looks like what he's been teaching and preaching about for all of those words let me read it for you one more time because it's a short passage it's in chapter 8 the very beginning jesus had come down from the mountain This is Moses' language. Coming down from Mount Sinai with the law. And Jesus comes down from the mountain. Great crowds followed him. And there was a leper who came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you so will. The language of will or to choose is the same word that shows up in the Lord's prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Thelemasu. It's the same word here. If you will. What is your will? If you will. You can make me clean. So he stretched out his hand and he touched him saying, I do will. Be made clean. And then immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony or a witness to them, what is going on in this passage? You all ready? This is going to be fun. OK? So language of Tst. how long do I have? Let's see how long I have. Oh, we're good. Okay, we got plenty of time here. Soaririt is the language of leprosy. We don't teach a lot about leprosy, right? We don't really talk a lot about skin diseases in church, even though it's super fun to talk about, because the passages where they come from are crazy. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Leviticus chapter 13. And nobody turned to Leviticus chapter 13 but the pastor. This image of the leper becomes the first image that jesus gives us after the sermon on the mount for what it looks like to enact the kingdom of god in real time and jesus's action is healing but not just healing it's also restoration but you have to understand what it means to be a leper and how it functions in the moral sphere of scripture to understand what is really happening in this passage so we're going to talk about leprosy for a second okay folks leprosy is this skin disease right Actually, last time I preached about leprosy years ago, I uh, took a class in high school on stage makeup, specifically gore makeup, and so I gave myself like the grossest of boils on my arm, and I went to the mall to feel what it would feel like to be marked in such a way, and it was it was a telling experience. Um, so leprosy is this general catch-all term. Tazaaret is the Hebrew language for it. For any surface disease, it is not simply a medical term, not principally a medical term, it is a moral term, it is a social term. Because it's not just leprosy of the skin, there are two other realms where leprosy can take hold. One is the clothing, and the other is the walls of a home. And what do all three of these have in common? The walls of your home, the surface of your clothing, and your skin These are barriers. These are spaces that are either make connection or isolation possible. They are the surface of an object. Now, you get in chapter 13 of Leviticus this entire crazy explanation for how you can tell if a skin disease is leprosy or not. And this is helpful because if it's just like a rash then the consequences are different than if it is Tazaaret. Chapter 13 does not give the moral reason. It just simply gives the way to diagnose. The priest does the diagnosing. You show yourself to the priest, so they come to your house and they examine your walls, and they have all of these different ways to understand what they're looking at. And if it is Tazaaret, then there is a set of consequences that come along with that. The biggest of those consequences is you got to Go. You gotta go outside. In fact, you gotta go all the way outside. You go pinch, pitch your tent way out, outside of camp. You stay there until everything's better. Which seems intense, right? But again, we're not talking about a medical condition. We're talking about a heart condition. But here's the question. Why do you get leprosy in the first place? What is the moral condition that evidences itself on your skin. The rabbis, the interpreters of the Hebrew scriptures, have this interpretive principle that says, where Torah is weak in one space, it is strong in another. Which simply means, when the Bible is obscure, the Bible will help you interpret itself somewhere else. So they look at this chapter 13 in Leviticus and they say, where have we seen or heard this before? And they go back. They go back to the book of Exodus. And they see there the moral cause leading to the situation. So here's what happened. You have Moses, right, the one called to lead the people out of slavery. And then you have Moses' family. Miriam and Aaron and at some point while they're in the wilderness the other two who are not Moses say Why can't we be Moses? Moses is always in charge always gets to call the shots and we're doing a lot of work, too We could be just as good as Moses. Why does he get to lead? And so they begin to whisper in the hallways They begin to send out emails that can be forwarded Right they get on social media Whatever the thing is at the time, it's Miriam and Aaron. They begin to gossip. It's called the Lashon Harah, the evil tongue. The evil tongue is dangerous. By the way, the quickest way to threaten a sense of belonging or community cohesion is to lean into the impulse to speak ill of someone else and to not have the courage to speak it to them but about them. So, there is this secret in the family because Aaron and Miriam have been talking and Moses is not quite aware of what's going on but there's all of a sudden this dissension, this community separation and breaking apart. Dismemberment. And one of them is struck down with leprosy. And so the rabbis say this condition is an outward evidencing of an inward reality. Because the evil tongue is hard to see. But it is dangerous for the community. And when a community is being held together by thin threads in the wild places, it is really important that those who try to break it apart are seen and known. And so Tazarit shows up on their home, on their clothes, on their skin. You cannot hide from this, the scriptures are saying. And so the consequence is they have to move outside the camp until their speech is healed. And then the threat to the community is dissipated. And so in Leviticus 13, at the end of the chapter, the consequence makes sense. The one shall remain unclean as long as the one has the disease. He or she is unclean. And they shall live alone. Their dwelling shall be outside the camp. Decay in a boundary, it meant disorder within. So when Jesus encounters this one so marked immediately after a sermon about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, Jesus recognizes that there is here with this one an encapsulation of everything that Jesus has been preaching about. Which is that for various reasons, we are all far away from one another. And this one particularly, this leprous individual, is not even belonging to the community of faith anymore. Can't go to the temple, can't go to worship, can't sacrifice, can't seek atonement for sins. Is in all ways an outsider. So it's a bold move that he would even show up and ask Jesus a question. But Jesus takes it a step further, right, and touches him and heals him and then says to him, go back and present yourself to the priest. Give the offering so commanded by Moses. He's speaking the language of communal restoration. Speaks it in a way that he would be familiar because Leviticus 14 talks about what happens if you are cleaned from leprosy. How you enter back into the community of faith. So when Jesus heals him. Jesus is not just simply healing a medical condition. Jesus is healing a social relational heart issue. Because the real pain. Is the same one that Jean Vanier talks about. It's bad enough to be sick. But to be unwanted. Is a whole other thing. So Jesus restores the man back to family. And somehow this. This. Is the kingdom of God. Jesus goes to the loneliest of people and makes a way for them to come home. It doesn't stop there, though. The next story is of a centurion. And this one's faith. Now we have moved out. So, right, you've got Jesus and the disciples. Then you've got the people of Israel who come to listen. And then you've got this one outside the camp known as a leper, but still part of the family, but just no longer at home in the family. Brings them back. Then Jesus takes another step out to the centurion. We are no longer in the realm of the people of Israel. And Jesus brings healing there. Doesn't stop there, though. Keeps stepping and stepping and stepping until he's met another blind person and he's met someone who's possessed and over and over and over again, if you read these next chapters in Matthew's gospel, there is healing and there is bringing people back. I, I got tired reading the thing. I have no idea how tired Jesus got doing the thing. The kingdom of God is apparently everyone coming home. It is this movement west, back to Eden. There is a, there is a, a symbol for restoration in the genogram. And it's not just simply redrawing the line of connection. Once there is a separation, it becomes part of the story. But it is not all of the story. It's a simple mark, but it feels profound. It's just simply this circle inside the cutoff. And Jesus moves into the spaces of pain and isolation and stands there creating a way for people to get back home. Dorothy Day, from the Catholic Workers' Movement, working principally with folks on the street and folks in deep poverty, talked in her autobiography called The Long Loneliness about what is at the root or the core here, what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is revealing. She says it like this. She says, we were just sitting there When Peter came in, this friend of hers, we were sitting there talking when lines of people began to form, saying, we need bread. We couldn't say, go, be thou filled. If there were six small loaves and a few fishes, we had to divide them. There was always bread. We were just sitting there talking, and people moved in on us. Let those who could take it, take it. Some moved out and made room for more, and somehow the walls expanded. Let me pause. If you keep reading in Matthew's gospel, after all of these healings, the part when I thought Jesus has got to be exhausted, the next thing Jesus does is pull the disciples in and hand them a vocation. It says, listen, you've watched how this is done. You've seen how to heal and how to restore. Now you go and you do likewise. Gives them what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. So Dorothy continues. We were just sitting there talking, and someone said, Let's all go live on a farm. It was as casual as all that, I often think, and it just came about. It just happened. I found myself a barren woman, the joyful mother of children. It's not always easy to be joyful, to keep in mind the duty of delight. The most significant thing about the Catholic workers is poverty, some would say. The most significant thing is community, others would say, that we're not alone. Anymore. Can you hear the language of Larsh, the language of belonging, answering that crisis of loneliness? But the final word is love. At times, it has been, in the words of a friend, a harsh and a dreadful thing, and our very faith in love has been tried through fire. Let's just pause and be honest. Belonging can be painful, even if it is also healing. When I speak to folks in this congregation about the idea of membership, the reason that we talk about membership is so that we might belong to one another deep enough to sustain ourselves through trials and tribulations, so that we can struggle together. So sometimes we can fight together, even. It's why we make promises, Community for community's sake can turn into a hellscape really quick. We know that. Everyone in your hearts just said amen. We cannot love God unless we love each other. And to love we must know each other. We know him in the breaking of bread. And we know we're not alone anymore. Heaven is a banquet and life is a banquet too, even with a crust and there is companionship. We have all known the long loneliness. And we've learned that the only solution is love and that love comes with community. It all happened while we were just sitting there talking and it's still going on. What we find in Matthew 8 is that Jesus... When Jesus tells us about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, Jesus is putting it all back together and then invites us to be agents of that vocation. Your entrance into the way of Jesus is accepting this path. To be healing agents. When Jesus talks about salt and light, talking about this. When Jesus talks about love of enemies, talking about this. When Jesus invites you into your own wholeness that we call salvation, it is so that you might bring other people home with you. One person who's doing this really well, one community in our neighborhood is Homeboy Industries. And months and months ago, I was preaching about a different but slightly connected topic, and a friend of mine, Zach, uh, sent me a quote from Father Greg Boyle, who uh, helped found Homeboy Industries. And it was about this circle of belonging. And it has been this image that has stayed with me. I said earlier that there's a difference between solitude and loneliness. And I don't want to confuse the two. Solitude is climbing Mount Sinai and finding God. Loneliness is climbing Golgotha and finding no one. Jesus has known both. So Father Boyle sees... In L.A., modern-day lepers left and right. Those for whom there is no home. Whose choices or whose circumstances has brought them far outside the camp. And they are marked not with leprosy, but with things like tattoos that let everyone know how sick they might be. The forgotten ones. And Boyle imagines that the gospel is true. True enough and big enough that even those who have no one could find their way back home. So I want to let him speak at the end here. These are his words from a lecture he gave. Sit with this, and then we're going to offer a prayer. Brian?
1: So we brace ourselves, because if we follow Jesus, it means you stand where he stands. St. Ignatius of Loyola says, see Jesus standing in the lowly place. And so with Jesus and God, we stand at the margins. We brace ourselves because people will accuse us of wasting our time. But the prophet Jeremiah writes, in this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness the voices of those who sing you follow Jesus and you make those voices heard and with Jesus and God at the center of his life you imagine a circle of compassion and then you imagine nobody standing outside that circle and to that end you seek with all your heart to dismantle the barriers that exclude because inclusion is the only thing that matters to Jesus as it does to God. And we inch our way out to the margins where we will find the poor and the powerless and the voiceless, see Jesus standing there in the lowly place. And we stand with those whose burdens are more than they can bear. And we stand with those whose dignity has been denied. And every once in a while, oh, what a privilege it is to be able to stand with the easily despised and the readily left out With the demonized, so that the demonizing will stop. And with the disposable, so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. If I were Jesus, I would want it to be all about me. That's how I know that this is the furthest thing from Jesus' mind. He wants it to be all about us about a community of kinship such that he, in fact, might recognize it. He wants it to be about exquisite mutuality, where there is no us and them, there's just us. He wants it to be about the kind of transformation that anchors us in the truth of how God sees us, that we are exactly what God had in mind when God made us. And so then we, with those on the margins with whom we're privileged to stand, we become that truth we inhabit that truth and no bullet can pierce it no four prison walls can keep it out and death can't touch it because it's huge the kinship that we create by standing at the margins and ensuring that there is no daylight that separates us is the only praise that Jesus has any interest in. Pray with me.
0: God, are we exactly what you imagined when you created us? Because often our loneliness makes us feel like we deserve to be left out in the cold and we barely believe you've made a way for us to come home. But the more we believe it, God, the more we trust that we can invite other people to the table. So open up our imaginations that we could see who is not here. Open up our hearts so that we would feel the pain of those who do not belong anywhere. Ground us now in your love. Make us sturdy in your love so that we can stand anywhere and there you might be as well. This is our praise and this is our hope that we would go where you are so that we would find you. And in finding you, we would find home. Amen.